Greetings, everyone. This is Volts for February 24th, 2023. How to think about solar radiation management. I'm your host, David Roberts. One of the more uncomfortable truths about climate change is that temperatures are going to rise for the next 30 to 40 years, no matter what we do, just based on carbon dioxide already in the atmosphere and the reduction of aerosol pollutants that are now shielding us from some of the worst of it. That's going to bring about potentially devastating changes that we do not yet well understand and are not prepared for. How can that short-term risk be mitigated? One proposal is to add particles to the atmosphere that would do on purpose what our aerosol pollution has been doing by accident, shield us from some of the rising heat. No one credible who advocates for solar radiation management, or SRM, believes that it is a substitute for reducing greenhouse gas emissions. Rather, it is a way to buy a little more time to reach zero carbon. My guest today, Kelly Wanzer, is the head of a nonprofit organization called Silver Lining that advocates for research and policy around near term climate risks and direct climate interventions like SRM that can address them. I have long been curious about and wary of solar radiation management, so I was eager to talk to Wanzer about the case for SRM, what we know and don't know about it, and what we still need to research. Okay, then, Kelly Wanzer of Silver Lining, uh, welcome to Volts. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you very much, David. I am a fan, and it's a pleasure to be here. Awesome. Well, I have wanted to do a pod on this subject forever. <laughs> I'm going to try to be focused, but I sort of have questions that are all over the place. So let's just jump right in. I, I sort of am, the way I'm approaching this is, I think to average people off the street, and maybe I even include myself in this, the idea of reaching up into the atmosphere and fiddling with it directly, thinking that we can dial in the temperature we want strikes me as crazy. And I, I think that's probably a lot of people's intuitive response. Obviously, you have thought your way past that, uh, going so far as to found an organization uh, designed to advocate for this stuff. So maybe just tell us a little, to begin with, your personal background and how you came to advocacy for geoengineering, which is not a super crowded field. I'll say first that you're actually not in the business of advocacy for geoengineering. And it will give you some context for how I came to be doing what I do. Sure, sure. Um, really, it was about, I was working in the technology sector in an area called IT infrastructure. And uh, that's the sort of plumbing of data and the internet mm -hmm. and was looking at problems like how you keep networks operating and I, you know, I started to read about climate change and I was very curious about the symptoms that we were starting to see in the climate system and where the risk really was. And I started to get to know various senior climate scientists in the Bay Area and other places. And I asked them the question, like you might ask, you know, what is the, how would you characterize the risk of runaway climate change in our lifetime? And this is maybe 12 years ago. And they said, well, it's in the single digits, but not the low single digits. <laughs> not, not super comforting. Yeah. I mean, my original degree was economics. So I thought, well, if you had those odds of winning the lottery, you'd be out buying tickets. If you had those odds right. of dying of cancer, you'd be getting treatment. So that seemed like a really high risk to be exposed to. And then they told me about another feature of what was happening in that, you know, carbon dioxide stays in the atmosphere for a long time, keeping mm -hmm. things warm comes out very slowly. So even if you stop emissions completely, and there are other dynamics going on, the system will continue to warm for a while. And so you've got another few decades of warming. So wherever you are and whatever you're seeing, you've got some additional warming that's going to happen, which means that whatever risk point you're at, you reach a higher risk point over that period of time. And so I became very interested in that problem because there's a mismatch between, you know, the increased risk profile of really 
serious and catastrophic uh, climate events and impacts and the kinds of responses that we had to reduce the risk. So really, my organization is focused on what what we call near-term climate risk, which is the 30 to 40-year time horizon, where the things we need to do to ultimately fix the problem, all the ways we reduce greenhouse gases in the system, they don't work in that time horizon Mm. to meaningfully reduce the risk. And so that's how we we find ourselves here, <laughs> because out you know getting back to your original comment, you know, in the absence of the kind of risk situation that we're in, these ideas would be really extreme, and and you wouldn't consider them. So we we like to use the sort of metaphor of medicine because it has many similarities to medical treatments, and medical treatments require a lot of research. And, you know, they're as useful as the context of where your condition is. Right. So maybe the way to phrase this is you looked around, you saw climate change, you saw that our ways of mitigating climate change are sort of slow, if you will, slow acting and long term, which leaves this short term risk gap. Right. So there's going to be warming over the next 30 to 40 years, regardless, almost, of what we do. And you're focused on how to mitigate those risks. Yeah. So related to that, and again, you know, you can go to the United Nations climate reports, right? And you can see what they think is happening and going to happen. They have these charts that show these curves, you know, and the curves go up all the pathways, all the different scenarios for climate change keep going up through 2050. Some of them bend back down because we've done a good job. But in their reports where they describe that, they're projecting what's happening to people and different parts of the world over those 30 years. And right now they've come out and said, well, under their projections, as many as 1 billion people get displaced. And you can go to websites that have simulations of what's going on, and you can see places that get overwhelmed by water, that get overwhelmed by heat. And so you've got a lot of suffering, a lot of dramatic impact that's baked in. And so what we're saying is, you know, we need to do really rapid research to find out if we can do better than that. <laughs> because in the current projections, it's bad for everyone, and it's terrible for quite a few people. Yeah. So, so, I mean, two things spring to mind confronted with that uh, situation. One is a lot of people looking at that would say, well, we need to go gangbusters on adaptation. You know, let's figure out, let's figure out how to make that suffering less by adapting to some of it. And the other thing that jumps to mind is methane, which, you know, as Volt's listeners know, is a greenhouse gas, but acts on a much shorter time horizon than CO2. And so I think that the thought in some quarters is if you could rapidly reduce methane, you could have a much more rapid effect on the climate than in reducing CO2. I, I, why, why not either of those two routes? So also those two routes. I think what, one of the things that struck me about coming into the climate space was it wasn't very well equipped to think in terms of portfolios. Mm. So if you look at the risk profile, you know, it's sort of like we're having these debates about should it be, you know, when it's solar or nuclear, should it be, you know, emissions reductions or these things. Mm -hmm. But if you, you know, if you look at the risk and uncertainty involved, there's a lot of uncertainty involved in all the different ways of responding to climate change. And there's a there's a huge amount of risk, um, you know, potentially existential risk. And so from a portfolio perspective, like methane reduction is one of my absolute favorites. And there are, mm-hmm. there are some great things happening in that field. Um, adaptation is uh, a harder problem, and it was made harder because people didn't want it in the portfolio 20 years ago. And, you know, they didn't want people to think it was adaptable, so they didn't want people looking at it. Well, it turns out when you look at it, you find out it's not easily adaptable. <laughs> really, really, you can see, like, look at Pakistan. I mean, you know, these big extreme events happen, and they're pretty overwhelming. And even in the U.S., you know, we're arguably one of the best equipped places in the world to manage these things. And, you know, 
Austin, Texas had, you know, a third of the city had no power. <laughs> yeah, we managed, we managed you know. to bungle it regularly, uh, even with all our money. But really what it was about is saying, okay, we should have a rich portfolio here. You know, if you, if you thought of this as like shares or you thought of this as insurance policies, we'd have a portfolio of things so that when you brought that portfolio together and those things with their different profiles and their different levels of uncertainty, we'd have a lot of like coverage. Right. And the problem is that this part of the portfolio, like if you needed to arrest climate change quickly, if you really needed to get in there and say, "Uh oh, the ice sheet's about to go the wet bulb effects in India are happening and we can't take it. And you needed something that operated in a sub-decade time horizon. Then that's the part of the portfolio that's empty. And we, we don't want to do those things. But from a risk management point of view, in terms of what's at stake, even evaluating whether we have them, that's something on deck that we really should be doing. And one more thing about the risk question, the the short-term risk question, and I feel like um, maybe more climate types have grown cognizant of this recently, but it's really an under-discussed aspect of all this is the aerosol effect. So maybe mm. just tell us um, what it is and why that adds to these worries about short-term risk. That is a great question uh, because as I was digging into this and finding out the things I'm telling you this came up. Effectively, there are forces um, in the atmosphere that you know trap heat and help keep us in this sort of temperate zone that we're in. And there are forces in the atmosphere that reflect energy away. And so the particles and clouds in the atmosphere, they're reflecting sunlight away from Earth, which is part of what keeps us in this Goldilocks zone. And when you look at the Earth from space and, and you see that shiny blue dot, that's what that is. And these particles that come into the atmosphere, they create clouds, they live in the atmosphere, they're part of that whole system, and they come from nature, but they also live in pollution. And the particulates in pollution that come from coal plants, that come from ships over the ocean, they are mixing with clouds they're living in the atmosphere in ways that make the atmosphere slightly brighter. Mm -hmm. And it's this effect that scientists have reported is cooling the planet currently by reflecting sunlight back to space. And they don't know exactly by how much, but they think it's between a half a degree Celsius and 1.1 degrees Celsius. That's not small. <laughs> no, it's not small. It could be offsetting half the warming that the gases would otherwise be making. Yeah, just to, just to sum that up, so our particulate pollution to date has had the sort of perverse effect of reflecting away a bunch of solar radiation with the, the consequent problem that insofar as we clean up our pollution, which we are striving to do, we are going to lose that cooling effect and maybe get another one whole degree of warming, which would double That's right. our warming since pre-industrial times. So... That's a little wild. <laughs> I was just going to say, you know, it's right there in the climate reports. Mm -hmm. And it's been there consistently, but not prominently noted, you know, not highlighted in the sort of climate discussion. And so it's, it's surfacing more now recently that, that this is there and we're getting very good at cleaning up pollution. One of the features of this problem is that in climate reports, when they when they show these effects, they'll have bar charts that show the different effects on the climate system. And they have these lines that show how much uncertainty there is. This is the most uncertain thing about mm. the climate system. And that uncertainty has been unchanged for 20 years. Uh -huh. We have not been able to improve our understanding of that. And so when, when we in Silver Lining are talking about our advocacy, we're saying, we need to improve our information base. We need to quickly improve our ability to do that problem. That problem happens to be the same or very similar to the problem of what if I want to achieve this effect actively. So we think, you know, it's kind of a no-brainer for society to say, we need to go after that problem really hard, like the human genome. 
and understand, you know, what's going to happen when we take the pollution away? And is there a cleaner, more controlled version of this that might help? Right. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to get to some of those questions in a minute. So the, the, the aerosol effect is, you know, you have these particles up there now, which, you know, talk about geoengineering. We've been geoengineering the climate ever since industrialization by throwing all these particles up, which are shielding us. So in effect, as we clean up our particulate pollution, we are pushing the target <laughs> for climate change farther and farther away. In other words, like we're making a longer and longer runway for ourselves. So in addition to um, advocating for research, which we'll get to in a minute, it looks like your organization has, you know, because the, the term geoengineering, I think as people think of it now, brings to mind all sorts of various and sundry schemes in the ocean and crumbling rocks and all these, di there's all these different notions, but it seems like you all have settled more or less. Your main focus is on solar radiation management, uh, SRM, which is just replacing the particles that we're taking out of the atmosphere with new particles <laughs> to continue enjoying that cooling effect. Why focus in on that one rather than the others? Is there a reason to think it is the most, you know, out of all the geoengineering schemes, why focus on this one? Well, we, we don't use the term geoengineering and we don't use the term scheme, but I will answer your question. <laughs> I, no, I noticed that you carefully say climate interventions yeah. rather than geoengineering. Yeah, climate intervention was a term the National Academy of Sciences coined in their 2015 report. And it's useful because, like you said, geoengineering kind of evokes the most engineering-oriented stuff, you know, like yeah, right. mirrors in space. And, and there's really not a lot of engineering involved. There's a lot of science involved. And it's directed at climate. And intervention is a really good term because it it's so, so similar characteristics to a medical type intervention. Right. You know, engineering has a lot of certainty. Like if I can do the math, I can engineer a bridge. And intervention has a lot of uncertainty and a lot of trade-offs depending on where the patient is. <laughs> mm -hmm. So this looks a little more like that. But to your question, we are a science-based, science-driven organization. So we follow what the scientists recommend. And so we didn't arrive at this conclusion ourselves. We took what the National Academy of Sciences and the Royal Society in the United Kingdom said. You know, they'd done a couple of assessments where they gathered scientific experts together and asked the same question. And, you know, if you, if you wanted to reduce warming in the, in the climate system quickly, what are the best candidates for research? And so they landed on this because there's a lot of precedent for this effect in the atmosphere. So in addition to the, what pollution is causing, they've seen this effect when large volcanoes go off and release material into the high layer, the outer layer of the atmosphere, the stratosphere, and they've seen that cool the climate system globally. So when Mount Pinatubo erupted in 1991, they observed about a half a degree Celsius of cooling for about a year and a half. So when people talk about, oh, these things are terrible, well, you, most of us who are you know, 25 or older experienced this already. When Mount Pinatubo went off and, and we didn't notice the sky was different, nothing, you know. So we've actually lived it a little bit already. And so in a sense, we know it worked, or at least we know the physical effect is somewhat predictable. Again, I'm going to go back to like the, the medical analogy because it's so similar. You know, mm. there are differences in efficacy and side effect profiles based on what we know today. And the reason you want to do research is to understand the efficacy and side effects better. Right, right, right. And so in the outer layer of the atmosphere, they feel like they know a lot more about the efficacy because the stratosphere is very uniform. They've seen it with volcanoes, um, and so you can get a pretty good grasp. Although they're finding, just as early research is going on, there are pretty big differences maybe in how you do it as to what happens. And you certainly don't want to do it like volcanoes do. <laughs> why, why, why not? Just out of curiosity, why not just? Uh, like, like all at once big bursts. So it turns out that doing it from most volcanoes are in the around the equatorial regions, which for some of what they're finding is like the worst place to do it. And that you wouldn't do it like in one giant burst all at once. And of course, volcanoes include a lot of stuff that you wouldn't put in there that isn't right. relevant. <laughs> right. 
so what we know or have some handle on is that, you know, in that kind of a burst where there's material in the stratosphere for a year or two and it gradually falls out, we kind of know a bit about what the side effect profile is of that a bit. And I should say, we, you know, we don't know that much about the chemistry effects and the ozone layer and things like that because our, our measurements aren't very good. But the thing we really need to think about is, okay, if, if you need to do this for, you know, a couple of decades, so 20, 30, 40 years, and it's got a side effect profile in different parts of the system, maybe it's heating up the stratosphere a little bit, and that gets to a point where you have big changes in circulation or other things. That's what they don't know. It occurs to me that we've gotten this far in without ever actually really seeing what we're talking about. So just just for listeners who might be confused, the, the idea here is to deliberately inject a bunch of these particles, sulfur particles, into the atmosphere to basically do on purpose what our pollution is doing by accident, reflect light away. And there are a couple of different um, versions of this, even if you just focus in on, this is called solar radiation management. I don't know if that's the term you all use. Yeah. But there's a couple of different versions even of that. So maybe just discuss like, what are we concretely talking about doing? There's different layers of the atmosphere. There's different methods of throwing things up. Maybe give us a sense of what, what it looks like in practice. So there's the idea that would sort of be lifting off from what they've seen with volcanoes, which is dispersing particles into the upper atmosphere, the stratosphere, probably via aircraft and possibly with selected places that they're releasing the material based on what they're learning in models about what produces the best efficacy with the least side effects. Mm-hmm. And that this would probably happen in a continuous way, you know, with planes flying continuously, releasing stuff. And the net effect that they're trying to produce is about a 1% increase in the amount of sunlight the stratosphere reflects. So it's not something that you'd see from the ground. It's not something that would be noticeable, except for maybe, you know, certain changes in lights to certain types of plants or things like that. And that would be the idea. One question about that mm-hmm. is the the stratosphere you said is, is pretty uniform. Would interventions on that level have a uniform effect around the world or would they be localized? It's far more uniform. The particles get entrained uh, in really high winds up there and disperse globally. Mm-hmm. And so you get a global effect you might have some differentiation in how that plays out, you know, down below in weather patterns and things. And that's what people want to study. And because it's not, it's not simple. It's a really complicated system. And one of the concerns scientists have is that like reflecting sunlight up there, you're slightly heating the stratosphere Uh and that can affect its interactions with the atmosphere below it. It can affect the way uh, chemicals play out in the stratosphere in a way that affects the ozone layer. And so all of those things, again, if you're like really good to think about medicine, it's like, ooh, how does it interact with that part of the body? And, you know, (laughs) uh, uh, there are medications, you know. (laughs) So there it's really about trying to project forward, you know, trying to figure out what is the optimized way to do this where you get the highest efficacy and the best safety. And isn't there also a whole other genre of this that has to do with clouds, putting the particles in lower clouds? Great question. Yes, there is. Um, And the particles that they're talking about putting in the clouds are different, too. Different than the stratospheric particles? That's right. So in the stratosphere, their starting point is um, sulfur dioxide, which is like what's the pollution. And they know the most about that because it's Mm. what volcanoes have put up there. Aircraft pollution is starting to waft up there too. But they're also looking at other things in the stratosphere like uh, calcium carbonate, which is chalk, like chalk dust. Uh, Interesting. And even diamond dust. So those those are the kind of the two other methods. And the idea here is trying to maximize reflectivity while minimizing presumably other. (laughs) That's right. Everything else. And in this case, especially thinking about the ozone layer. And that's important, obviously. And in fact, in the international 
arena in the UN where they've done probably the most uh, scientific evaluation of these things to date is in the part of the UN that looks after the ozone layer, Mm, the Montreal Protocol. So they're thinking forward about that. And that's, you know, the issues in the upper atmosphere in in the low cloud layer. So we have lots of particles going up into clouds all the time, especially over land. The less polluted clouds are over the ocean. Although you can see, and if anyone listening to the podcast, if you Google ship track, um, it'll pull up pictures of, you know, cloud decks over the ocean. And you can see these streaks in the clouds that are made by the emissions of ships. And so that's like the ship particulates from the ship pollution, brightening the clouds. And you can see it visibly where it's really concentrated, but it's also spreading in ways that you don't see visually. So the idea here is, well, could we use a cleaner material and really optimize the effect? And it turns out one of the very best materials for doing this with is um, one of the materials that's part of making clouds of the ocean, which is sea salt, sea salt spray from ocean water. And so what what scientists proposed um, to British scientists back in the 90s was, well, maybe you could make a really optimized mist from uh, sea spray, spray it from ships in a continuous way, and brighten the kinds of clouds that are really susceptible to this, and do it in more localized areas where you get a big bang for the buck. And so you still offset a couple degrees of warming but you're only dispersing over like something equivalent to three to four percent of the ocean surface. Oh, interesting. And this would also have a uniform global effect because it seems much a tighter area, lower clouds. It just seems intuitively like that ought to be more of a local effect. Does that also end up spreading? Your intuition is correct. <laughs> it is. Uh, it is localized. And the side effects that you're most interested in is, you know, what does that do? Because you are creating concentrated areas of cooling right. in the system. And these are all the mechanisms by which, you know, weather and atmosphere move around. So it's almost certainly likely to affect um, weather flows and patterns. And the thing you would be trying to learn then is, you know, are there ways for that to work in your favor? And are there ways for that to be really bad? And so I'll give you two, I'll give you two examples. Um, and one of the reasons we're such strong advocates for research is because these kinds of questions really shine a light on where our climate models and our climate observations are weak. So to answer these questions, you've got to really improve doing that uncertainty problem and also getting better at weather circulation. But in the very early models, which we help fund to try to represent these things, one of the possibilities that arose is that when they simulate brightening clouds over the Southern Ocean, which is one of the places that you might do it, you get these um, cooling currents because it cools the water below in the air in the low layer that flow onto Antarctica. And so you got this improvement in it's kind of an outsized cooling of Antarctica, which is a useful thing potentially. <laughs> But on the reverse side, you know, in another targeted area of clouds, when they cooled that region, they affected weather patterns such that you got dryness in the Amazon forest region, mm. which was a very bad thing to have. Yeah. So, so in, in the moral to this story is that these are just very early, you know, bottle-based simulations that tell you you have these kinds of questions. And that it's probably, you know, given the state of the risk that we have and given that it's one of the top two candidates and given that studying it will help us understand what the pollution problem is going to do. Um, Really important to study, but really hard to say for sure whether or how you should use it. So these two versions of SRM solar radiation management, the injecting particles in the stratosphere, and then the cloud brightening. Are those the sort of two main, most viable sort of targets for research? Like when people think about SRM, are those the kind of the two things that should come to mind? They are from scientific assessments and from senior scientists. There's a third one that's sort of like tier below because um, 
it's even more uncertain than the low cloud brightening, but it is something that is already occurring. And this is in the high cloud layer, so between the stratosphere and the lower atmosphere, so the upper troposphere where you get to when you're cruising altitude on a long flight, like 30,000 feet. Depending on the circumstances, when you put pollution particles or similar into these high clouds, you can have the effect of either thickening them or thinning them, depending on the conditions. Mm -hmm. And those clouds are insulating clouds, so they keep heat trapped in, um, infrared radiation trapped in. So if you put particles in them in in the right circumstances, you could thin them. Uh, Let more heat out. Let more heat out. And this phenomenon is happening um, from air traffic, from airplanes, and we don't know enough about it. (laughs) Well... I have um, a bunch of questions about uh, governance and moral hazard and, and, mm-hmm. and all this. But first, let's just briefly touch on the main subject of, the, of your latest report, which is just research, uh, advocating for research. You know, I come into this sort of like leery about doing <laughs> things like this that, that we know so little about. But when I got into sort of reading about the kind of research we need, what's sort of remarkable is probably like two-thirds of the research you're advocating is not even directly on doing these things. It's just understanding what's in the atmosphere right now. Like, what are the risks of short-term rapid changes now? Just very basic climate science stuff that you would think we would already be researching. So, I mean, I think even sort of the most uh, uh, committed opponent of these schemes um, would agree that, like, it's crazy how little we know about this whole area of study. So maybe just like talk about what, when you advocate for research, just talk about sort of the basics of what you're advocating for here. I mean, I think people will be a little bit shocked at how that some of this stuff doesn't already exist. Well, thank you for that. You're exactly right because I think we were shocked, you know, not coming from this field and just looking at, kind of looking at it as an information problem. And the problem you want to do is you want to be able to project and evaluate the risk of what what the climate system is going to do. So I'd really like to know, be able to project with some confidence, you know, how the Earth system is going to respond to this warming, you know, over the next 30 years. And then what it would look like if you change the things that are influencing it, either in the warming direction, the greenhouse gases, or in the cooling direction, what scientists call aerosols, these particles. So, you know, we're coming at it saying, okay, we, we just want to help set, set us up to do that problem and evaluate what it looks like, you know, if you are introducing aerosols in different ways and how does that improve or not, like the risk profile of what's happening. And so then we bump into, you know, these gaps and what's, you know, the problems that we can't do in the models and a lot of them center right in the atmosphere, that the models don't represent all the phenomena that are happening in the atmosphere very well, mm-hmm. and that we don't have the the observations that we need to improve them. You know, it's, it's like insane. It's like five, five, six decades now of talk about climate change and talk about all this, but we still, on some very basic levels, are just not watching what's happening in the atmosphere. I think people assume that, you know, it's like, hey, we've got this, right? And you hear you hear there are these satellites, like, and you hear the scientific studies coming out that are projecting what climate is going to do. We have satellites looking at everything. And then you sort of dig under the hood, and that's where, you know, solar radiation management just as a, an analysis problem. Because, you know, what some of the scientists in our circles have said is, like, people want a higher standard of evidence for this. So they're saying, well, you need to be able to tell us what will happen and what the impacts will be. And we shouldn't be having that standard of evidence for what greenhouse gas is doing (laughs) and what these other aerosols are doing. But we haven't. And so we get we get in there and say, "Okay, if you really want to do this problem, here's what you need. So to give you an example for the very top candidate for this is putting particles in the stratosphere. Mm -hmm. And so if you want to project what will happen, you first need a baseline of what's in the stratosphere. And it turns out we don't have that. We, you know, we can't characterize what's in the stratosphere currently. So then it's very hard 
to do that problem. And so the first thing that we did when we started talking to members of Congress and working with NOAA is just to say, we have this problem of having a baseline of what's there, which is a really important problem to solve if you want to know if somebody else is adding material to the stratosphere, if you want to know what it will do. And so that, that was our starting point. And it's similar kinds of things now where, you know, even in the low coddler, we're working on a program to put instruments on ships, like the current ships that travel that would just be taking atmospheric readings of that, you know, low atmosphere so that you would have a baseline and you'd be able to help the models and even the satellites interpret what's going on. Right. So just gathering more data about what's actually in the atmosphere. So we have a baseline because, you know, one thing the the report emphasizes over and over again is that it doesn't really make sense to talk about the risks of doing these things in isolation. It's always what is the risk of this intervention versus the risk of not doing this intervention? Like what, what are the risks we're facing as a baseline against which we are measuring the risks of this intervention. And we just don't know. That's what's wild to me. We just don't know what the current risks are. So we we're you know, we can't, there's no way to make a informed risk judgment because you don't know the differential. That's right. And, and we haven't really invested in it, which is, a, you know, another quite eye-popping reality. <laughs> it's wild. Like globally and in the United States, climate research investments have been relatively flat for decades. That is wild to me. I know every time I read that, I I read that statistic periodically and every time I run across it, I'm shocked all over again. Like all this talk, all this international action, all this agita and angst, and we're not spending any more on climate research than we were two decades ago. This really baffled me coming into this. (laughs) I I didn't understand it. And I sort of learned like there was quite a long period of time where, where there was an orientation that I'm kind of sympathetic to, which was we know what we need to know. We need to reduce emissions. And so if you think about it as like two sides of an equation and you, you, know, you look at the reduce emissions side of that equation and you just focus everything on that and you say, don't spend your energy on figuring out what's going to happen if it gets warmer because we're not going to let it get warmer. <laughs> and, and really that combined with a lot of other pressures on climate science. You know, climate science has been in, you know, lockdown mode. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, I, I can still remember like 10 or 12 years ago. It's brutal. Under siege. Yes. Terrifying. But now we're seeing these extremes and we've had a flat level of investment. And inside that flat level of investment in climate research, in the part that looks directly at the atmosphere, atmospheric observation and atmospheric basic science has actually declined in real terms. Oh, my God. That is mind-boggling. It's heartbreaking. <laughs> so, and, and that's the fulcrum for everything we need to know about you know, what's happening and how we evaluate what we're going to do. So the good thing is like, it represents an opportunity if we can improve it. And I'll just finish by saying climate research investments in the United States are about three and a half billion a year. And that's everything on, on the, that side of the equation. And if you compare that to, you know, the 55 billion we, we spent on the three most recent storms. Yes. <laughs> um, and even the big money that's gone into these other programs. What we're saying is, hey, to invest an additional 60 or 70 percent in that and bring it up to five and a half, six billion a year. That seems reasonable. I really encourage listeners to go look at the report because the details of what kinds of research are needed are, like I keep saying, sort of eye-popping. Because over and over again, you're going to read something and be like, wait, we're not doing that already? <laughs> like, we're not looking at that already? We're not measuring that already? We're not, that's not included in the models already? A lot of the research recommendations are just like stuff we should obviously be doing regardless of what you think about these direct interventions. And, and then and only when we have a better understanding of these short-term climate effects, can we even coherently compare uh, what, what would happen if we did these interventions, right? We, only then would we have a baseline against which to compare. And the, the details of some of that research are really interesting. But just sort of to wrap up the research part, let's just talk about that price tag so, so we can get a sense of the, of the scale. You want to double from $3.3 billion to six point three or something like that. But just, you know, like, I hate to be a cliche, but like, compare this to how much we <laughs> spend on 
defense research or like right. pharmaceutical research or like dog food research. It's, it's, you know, concretely, what price tag are you asking for and sort of like where basically would that money go? Well, so concretely, we're asking for an additional $2.6 billion a year um, mm-hmm. on top of the approximately $3.5 billion. So it's less than double. And it's spread across kind of the modeling and analysis and scientific workforce side of it across observational platforms, which are the most expensive piece. So you need the airplanes that fly through the atmosphere to take readings. You need stuff on the ocean and the surface. And shockingly, the satellites that actually look at, can look at aerosol particles in the atmosphere, they're aging out and there are no plans to replace them. Uh, yeah. So we're going to know less about aerosols We're going to know less soon. It <laughs> seems like the wrong... Um, and so, so the investment in those platforms, and here's the other oh, hold your gut thing. The U.S. supplies most of the world's data. So if, uh, if we don't do it in the U.S., we can't count on it coming in. There are some European programs, but the U.S. is the biggest provider of this information. Yikes. It just seems like, how is yeah. it in the U.N., all this sort of like poorer and more vulnerable countries organize and they want you know, money in the green fund and all this, how is it like they are the ones who are most directly at risk in this 30 to 40 year time horizon in some very direct and scary ways? Why aren't they advocating for research? Like what's going on? Well, they, they have a lot of fish to fry um, <laughs> and a huge amount of, huge amount of sympathy because, you know, they're getting pummeled by the impacts and they're not getting the money they were promised to deal with the impacts or, you know, the transition. And what's, what's striking is many of them are still ahead of the developed countries in transitioning away from fossil fuels. Mm-hmm. You take a country, country like Honduras, they're over um, accomplishing against their commitments. And they're, they're like the second or third most impacted country by climate change. Like half the country is going to disappear in the period I'm talking about. And so a lot of these countries are really impressive in in how they're trying to deal with this, but they don't have good visibility of these research problems because they don't have the assets to do this problem at all. Right, right. And so that's get that gets into where you talk about the climate system is so big and so complicated that you need very high tech resources like massive supercomputers, satellites, stratosphere capable aircraft that only, you know, a handful of countries actually have. Yeah, I guess one one additional note about the research to emphasize is just and you and you have a whole piece about this in the in the report is just the people from these vulnerable countries who are now more or less locked out of this research by the high sort of capital costs of it need to be brought in, right? This is, cannot be another right. sort of white dudes around a conference table uh, undertaking. Their interests are most directly involved, and they need to be involved in the research. That's just just to put a pin uh, in that. I'll say one more thing, and I'll give a plug to our partner at Amazon, because we care about that problem a lot, and there are ways that technology can help. And so with regard to giving access quickly, getting the climate models and data sets onto the cloud out of these you know, big supercomputing one-off facilities and onto the cloud where people in different parts of the world can access them has a huge potential to benefit, it takes a bit of technical work, it takes some money, but then, you know, they have supercomputing too. They have climate models, they have the data sets too. And so we're working on this very actively right now. It's like Netflix, you know, it's like, how do we bring it to the world? And if you want those people to be able to do these problems of what, what is climate change going to do in my part of the world, and then what would these interventions do? You need things like that, and you you need them pretty fast. Right. Most research, yeah, you notice of the little there has been, has been focused mostly on developed countries because that's just where the, the researchers tend to be. And, that's right. And, you know, there are huge justice implications to both these interventions and, just to emphasize again, to not doing these interventions, <laughs> to not doing anything. Uh, both those have enormous justice implications, which need to be centered. So 
Yeah, if I could just sort of summarize the research bit, the, the, the part that struck me is just how much of this research seems like it ought to be happening anyway. It's uncontroversial. It's crazy that we're not doing it mm-hmm. regardless of whether we decide or want to intervene directly or not, understanding the short-term dynamics of the climate and and the the risk of tipping points and the dynamics of aerosols and all these things. We're just woefully underfunded and need more funding. That seems uncontroversial. So. I want to get to the problems that everybody, you know, when I ask about this online, everybody sort of comes up with the same question, which is just this sort of nest of moral hazard problems. And so just for listeners who aren't familiar with the term, the idea of moral hazard is the the worry here. One of the worries here is if this becomes a real possibility, it will serve as an excuse to do less mitigation, basically to reduce emissions less. The idea is that here we have an escape hatch. Like I had a, a guest on talking about modeling a, a few weeks ago, and she was sort of talking about how in climate models, you know, we just have CCS plugged in as kind of a, you know, carbon capture and sequestration plugged in as kind of a gap filler because we don't know what else to fill that gap with. Right. But it gives us sort of this false sense of security, like, oh, we can get to the targets. Even though if you look at the models, like, oh, here's a kajillion tons of a technology that does not really exist yet on any commercial scale. Like, so it's giving us a false sense of security. And her worry is that solar radiation management is going to serve a similar role, i.e. kind of an escape hatch that you can just plug into models when you want to get the right output. That's one of the sort of moral hazard arguments is that it'll lull us into a false sense of security and will reduce the urgency of mitigation. I'm sure you've discussed that issue a kajillion times. What's your kind of take on it? Um, yeah, we might need a whole nother podcast, but <laughs> I know, I know. I, I wish we'd had more time for this. I share the worry that it gets plugged in in a similar kind of way. I might differ in what I think that means about research because I've had this this moral hazard issue has come into our world in saying it's a reason not to do research mm. because the research itself creates this impression that you're going down this path and it it opens up this option and you know digging into this you know coming from outside and looking starting to learn from people the history because these same arguments were made about adaptation research and they were made about carbon dioxide removal research and they were even made about research into reducing methane, huh. that it would distract from looking at CO2. <sighs> and, and what kind of happens is they say, well, the research creates a moral hazard. So, so they sort of suppress this research. Adaptation research is a really good example because then you didn't have it. Well, mm-hmm. the research might have given you a lot of really interesting information that compelled thinking about emissions reduction because of, you know, the kind of adaptation shit show that, that, you, that the reality <laughs> yeah, I know. Is. I know. The more you know about adaptation, the more it's not like you're yeah. going to be like, oh, that's easy. That's easy. Let's Best just do that instead. The motivator on planet Earth would have been to have just tons of adaptation research. <laughs> I mean, it's just, so that, that really blew my mind, actually. And so, you know, what I think, I guess, or, you know, our premise is that information actually helps. And when you dig into these climate interventions, they're not magic. And I sat with conservatives and Republicans in Congress and said to them, look, what the science tells you is the least amount of additional things you put in the atmosphere, the safer it is. Yeah, yeah that's which is just completely. It's showing you where the thresholds are, you know, and I can have that conversation. And so we say there's at least least we need to look at the evidence that when we start to dig into this, there's also evidence could be highly motivating that, you know, of, of pushing on emissions reductions and pushing on the things we can do. That's in addition to all the fact that we want to fill gaps in information that will help all these other parts of the climate problem. You know, we're saying that we think society actually with more information can do a better job. And that information itself isn't bad. <laughs> yeah, well, most people would agree to that with that up to a certain extent, I think. But then um, gathering information is one thing. But how do you, at a certain point, when you're talking about doing these things, it's so complex. 
there's no way to predict or model completely in advance what's going to happen. So ultimately, you have to do some of this stuff to find out what's going to happen. And I guess a lot of people just wonder, sort of like, how do you half do this? What is an, what is an experiment along these lines even look like? And ultimately, like, how much can you learn without doing it on a big, broad scale? And then once you've done it on a big, broad scale, it's sort of like the Pandora's box is open you know, one, it's one thing to understand the climate better, but how do you understand doing these things without doing them? I think if, if you think about the steps of like what you can learn in what ways. So the things, the thing that scientists are proposing doing are releases of plumes, like small batches of plumes, like the equivalent of what comes out of the smokestack of a ship mm-hmm. or of an aircraft. And that gives you a lot more information than you have now about how the particles behave when they hit the atmosphere and how they disperse. And that is information that right now, if you want to model this stuff, you're just taking a wild flaming guess. (laughs) And and then everything downstream of that is just based on your wild flaming guess. (laughs) And so if, if I want to know like, ooh, what are the right, exactly right size of particles and what are they, you know, like... Those really teeny on earth terms experiments give you that first order information that you can plug into models and then your models of what happens at a bigger scale are a lot smarter. And so that level, like I think scientists have said, like they've recommended it already in scientific assessments, but people are confused because it's sort of conflated with, oh, you know, Previous folks in the space have said this is cheap and easy to do, and we got a guy mm. out there saying you can throw up balloons, and you know, <laughs> it, it you know it, it's like I've dug a tiny hole, but I'm building a skyscraper. Like <laughs> what you would need to engineer the climate system is tens of billions of dollars of investment in something that that would be able to influence the planet at, at a really big scale. And so you have this inflection point where there's a bunch of science you need to do to even, you know, advise uh, countries or the Mm -hmm. world as to what would make sense as far as regards investment like that, if anything. So no one is going to be, you know, off doing this at the kind of scale that that would really have a major impact without a, a really big investment. Well... Let's talk about this thing because it is sort of. It, <laughs> I I let myself in for that one, didn't I? <laughs> it is kind of conventional wisdom, or at least oft repeated in this space, yeah. that sulfur particles and squirting them up into the atmosphere is relatively cheap compared to other things, such that like a single interested country or even a single interested billionaire could do a big chunk of it themselves. So before we discuss the kind of security and governance implications of that, just is that true? Well, I think what's happened as, you know, some research has started to happen, you know, there's the things that uh, sort of physicists and modelers do, you know, with the information that they have and the numbers that they have and aren't taking into account a, a lot of the complexity, a lot of the uncertainty, or even a lot of the way the world really works. And so then you dig in and you say, oh, you know, no, it's what it looks like is you need platforms capable of reaching the stratosphere. If you're going to work up there, there's only a handful of countries that have that. They're ones Mm -hmm. with space programs. And you would need to scale up very substantially, like any sort of capacity for that, which is not within the means of more than a handful of countries and, re- and really not in the means of any individual billionaire either. And they're also, by the way, none of them are stepping in to spend their whole net worth this way either. <laughs> so, um, so I think that was kind of, you know, when, when you do it in the back of the envelope and you, you know, you know, very little, you know, you can sort of be optimistic about that. But when you dig in, <laughs> It, you know, the reality is it's probably, you know, a subset of the world's developed countries or countries with a lot of assets right. who would be players in that. Now, in the low cloud layer, it's a little bit different because you've got these cloud seeding efforts that are coming up and springing up to try to address local impacts. And there are ways that cloud brightening could be used that people are starting to look at. 
And so you could get regional things that could affect other people and, and things like that that are more widely available mm-hmm. or, you know, potentially used. So that, you know, these are questions that need to be thought about. And again, science and observation really helps you. And it's not a good space to be flying blind in. <laughs> right. Well, b- the broader question of governance, I guess, is is one thing that really just vexes people about this, vexes me about it too, which is just like whenever I read or listen to like someone like you talk about it, I'm like, ah, it's just like cool heads, reasonable people taking all the right precautions, building institutional capacity such that scientists are in the driver's seat of this thing and, <laughs> and policymakers only doing what scientists sort of advise them and you know, there's international cooperation and there's knowledge sharing and et cetera, et cetera. Like it sounds delightful when sensible people discuss it as though sensible people will be in charge of it. But of course, you know, a glance at recent world history <laughs> reveals that quite frequently sensible people are not in charge. You know, you say that the the bar for getting seriously involved in this is higher than maybe people think, but it certainly seems like this is something that people could be doing sort of half-ass <laughs> experiments with uh, in various ways. Sort of how do you, or I guess just what's your confidence that a sensible international knowledge, transparent knowledge sharing system is going to be in place to manage doing this research and taking these experiments and trying this versus, you know, scientists losing control over it and, and insane capitalists or, or rogue nations or whatever, taking it and running with it. Is there a, an answer to that question, like what's what's the best we can do to try to keep this under the control of sensible people? Well, that's a great question. And I think one of the reasons that silver lining exists is really that question, which is if you think about the climate conditions getting potentially worse and worse and, and people being more inclined to take kind of radical actions, mm-hmm. how do you put yourself in a position to be smart? to be equitable and to be as safe as you can in that context. So it it definitely appears that like when you have a sharing of information and you have cooperation around like science and information, it calms everybody down. And (laughs) there's a lot of, um, you know, like when we have conversations with policymakers, whether it's in Congress or the UN, and we say, yeah, you know, we're here to talk about science and how we step forward on scientific work and, and cooperation and be like, great, you know, because we can do that as, as policymakers and we can work across the aisle. We can work with people we don't agree with on other things if we're in the science lane. And that, that's been true in our experience in the U.S., where we've worked across the aisle in Congress, and we've gotten Republicans to increase basic climate, basic science budgets mm. in, in a Republican Congress. Well, that's something. Yeah. And so it, when you're in, when you're talking about science and you're talking about, you know, ways of that technology can improve science and sharing information and same at the UN level. And then as we started to dig into, you know, how do, how do different things work in the UN and where do they work well and where don't they work well and why? And we worked with a couple of experts, Dan Bedansky, who wrote the book on international climate law, and Sue Binias, who is the current deputy climate advisor for the U.S., to look at that question in the context of this subject. And what emerged is like, what we're interested in silver lining is what is most effective in terms of outcomes? What produces the best outcome in the environment? What produces the best outcome in safety for people? And the absolute best um, case of that is the Montreal Protocol for the protection of the ozone layer. And so we really have gone up close and personal to figure out why does that work? Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and yeah, people say, well, it's a narrow problem, but actually it's, it's quite similar to this one. You've got a smaller number of actors, you know, you've got a, f- a sort of focus thing they're emitting. Um, you've got all the countries of the world you know, not only agreeing to that, but they've agreed to changes in it, expansions of it. Everybody makes their commitments. It's really interesting. And <laughs> they have this 
they have this feature that's different from the other UN fora. The scientific and technical assessment panels that make the evaluation of what's going on and what needs to be done are fully independent of the nation states. Their reports are written completely independently. And if you look at the IPCC, where the UN does their climate work, they negotiate kind of the top line summary of what those reports say yeah. with the countries. And so, you know, again, we could do a whole podcast on this, but I would say that really looking at the Montreal Protocol, A, because it does apply to this particular thing as it would operate in the stratosphere, and B, because understanding how that works is, is really important because all the countries of the world are continuously meeting every year. And, and we went to their meeting. It's calm. People are collegial. <laughs> it, it's incredible. <laughs> so figuring that out, it, you know, and, and how we can translate that onto other things, I think is a really good idea. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if, only, if only all international cooperation and agreements could be as calm and sensible as Montreal. Right. This this does seem like an area where really going overboard to keep the science independent seems super important because this is just this whole thicket of issues here is going to implicate countries in a lot of like sort of our interests versus global interests. You know, there's a lot of, there's going to be a lot of uh, ulterior motives, <laughs> I think, involved. You know, everybody's going to be sort of thinking on the one hand, how can we improve the world and the in the state of science? On the other hand, is like how can we make out best <laughs> in, in a world where people are messing with solar radiation? So it does seem like independent science is is more important even than normal. And it's really important to your point from before that other countries, you know, especially the most impacted, the developing countries, have the same level of access to information and can evaluate it for themselves. Is there kind of a um, short-term goal of yours? Like, is there a particular uh, development or institution you'd like to see founded or just like a, a, a first step? Is there something kind of tangible people can look forward to and advocate for if they want to see more progress on this? Well, certainly they can support Silver Lining. Um, we, we're like a medical foundation. So we fund research directly so that we can mm. help advance some of the initial critical research, like getting the climate model, supporting some of these problems, uh, some of the lab work and things like that. And that feeds into our, you know, our broader advocacy, which is trying to get the, the U.S. government to invest in research aggressively. And like you said, some of these assets that we need to understand the atmosphere and climate system, you know, for, for people who are in a position to help influence attention on the fact that, you know, we have gaps in our understanding of what influences on the atmosphere due to the climate. And that's not acceptable. And we need to improve on that really fast. Right. It's a little wild that we just spent, uh, we just passed a bill spending hundreds of billions of dollars on manufacturing and stuff. And literally like a rounding error on any of those sums would have been enough to double our right. research budget. It's a little wild. Yes. So anything people can do to kind of, you know, be in there for the atmosphere. <laughs> you know, we're alone on the Hill right now, uh, lobbying for, you know, increases in budgets for, for atmospheric observations and research. That's a little, I, I guess I don't understand. Why are, why are scientists themselves not more self-interestedly advocating for this? Like, why don't you have yeah, allies? It's very interesting. I, you know, I, t I talked to them about, cause like the, the astrophysics community, you know, the telescope people, man, they get those big telescopes. And they're, <laughs> yeah. they're really good at it. Um, but part of it is that climate research is classified and has emerged as a basic science. It's very academic. And it hasn't involved, you know, big applied efforts um, and technologies have come in relatively recently. So they've been pretty good at getting like supercomputing attached to like national labs. But in general, it's very academic. You know, there's been a lot of downward pressure on climate scientists in terms of sticking their nets up. And so, you know, it, it just hasn't had the same, you know, those same drivers. And it doesn't have a commercial community. 
you know, like bioscience or space. Right, or, right, right. And so, so there, there's a money in it for anybody. <laughs> you got to wonder if there, you know, once we understand these things a lot better and get a lot better uh-huh. at it, if there might emerge commercial applications, can you imagine them? It's changing quickly because there are obviously economic interests in being able to make better predictions. And as the climate system gets more volatile and, you know, there are more risks, that information becomes more valuable. You know, so the landscape is changing, but that upstream part, which is like, do we know what's specifically in the atmosphere? And can we model that like from its tiny components down to what it's doing, you know, to the climate system? That piece is, it's so basic and so general to everyone that nobody's there. (laughs) <laughs> Interesting. Well, uh, thank you for coming on and, and clarifying this. This is a this. I feel like this is a subject where there's just lots of weird mythologies and and hangups and axes to grind floating around, and not a lot of sort of basic uh, knowledge of what's actually happening and what needs to happen. So, uh, I appreciate uh, your work on this, and thanks for coming on and sharing with us. Well, I really appreciate your questions and the opportunity to talk about it. Uh, Love your show. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Volts podcast. It is ad-free, powered entirely by listeners like you. If you value conversations like this, please consider becoming a paid Volts subscriber at volts.wtf. Yes, that's volts.wtf so that I can continue doing this work. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.